This is Carl. This is Mark. And this is Sarah. And this is Retrograding. Yes, this is Retrograding, the show where three 90s kids give adult looks to our favorite childhood movies. This month, we are taking a look back at Vertigo to see if our nostalgia is warranted. So, right up on the top, I want to say I didn't have nostalgia for this film because this is a first watch for me. I think we had intended this to maybe be a blind watch, but then you guys had seen it before, and so we'll do a blind watch next month for a different movie. I picked it because it happens to be on a poster of top movies I received for Christmas last year, and I'm trying to get through all those movies. So, I figured why not knock out two birds with one stone and watch a movie on that and do it for this as well. I thought you knew that we had seen this, though, because you played one of our games. You picked some movie, and both of us thought it was this one, and you kept arguing that it wasn't. No, the... I mean, maybe that did happen, but we can get into, I don't know the specific situation, the way I understand it, is I thought a different movie was Vertigo, and you guys corrected me and said, no, Carl, that's not Vertigo, you're thinking of a weird, different movie that isn't this at all, and you guys were right, it was the wrong movie. Now, it would have been interesting to watch Vertigo this month and then watch that movie next month to see how they're not the same the thing of it is, I, I found that movie. That movie is called Cat's Eye, and it is a, it's a movie in three parts where it shows three different short stories written by Stephen King. And I think they were all published together in an anthology, and then the movie is just those three stories played back to back, where the thread throughout all of them is it's, you're following a cat, who keeps running into people, and those people have these Stephen King stories happen to them. And the middle story uh, is about a guy who is forced out onto a ledge of a penthouse apartment building and is told that he needs to go around the edge or he will be shot, and if he happens to go all the way around the edge, he will survive and he's he'll be able to live. So he takes on the wager because it's either that or death, and the story's about him going all the way around and surviving. But uh, we can get into what more of that story is later on, but for <laughs> now, uh, I think we should start with my 60-second synopsis. I timed this, and I came in just under a minute, which means with the time delay, I'll be a little bit over a minute, but we'll see how it goes. Well, I have a timer ready. I... As we have discussed, I am on a new cell phone, so oh boy. so I don't even know what the sound is at the end, or if it makes a sound when it runs out. <laughs> so we'll, we'll find out together. All right, you'll have to let me know. Uh, I hate doing these, but please give me a, uh, a countdown, a, a countdown, a countdown. It's the final countdown. Let's go. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. 
Johnny Scotty Ferguson intends to live a life of leisure after an accident during a chase ended his career as a policeman and left him with a fear of heights. A college friend hires him as a private detective to follow his wife, Madeline, who has been acting strangely and may be losing her mind. Scotty follows Madeline around San Francisco as she visits several locations related to Carlotta Valdez, Madeline's great-grandmother who committed suicide when she was Madeline's age. Scotty tails her to Fort Point where she falls into the bay and Scotty saves her. This begins their relationship and they fall in love pursuing Carlotta's hold over Madeline while visiting Carlotta's childhood home, a church mission. Madeline runs up the bell tower. Scotty tries to follow, but can't because it's fear, and Madeline jumps to her death. Cleared of all charges, Scotty goes to a sanitarium as he becomes clinically depressed. When he recovers, he discovers a woman who looks exactly like Madeline, Judy Parton, and pursues her romantically. A flashback reveals Judy portrayed Madeline to aid in the real Madeline's murder, and it was who Scotty fell in love with, but she keeps this hidden as Scotty pursues her. Scotty becomes obsessed with making Judy look like Madeline. When he finally succeeds, notices Judy has Madeline's iconic necklace, and he pieces things together. He brings her to the church and forces her up the bell tower, makes her admit the truth. <laughs> When all is revealed, there is a nun surprise, which startles Judy, and she falls to her death, leaving Scotty bereaved again. Oh. So close, but I, I knew I was going to go, because uh, even on my practice runs, I stumbled over a few things the first couple of times, and then when I yeah. finally got all of it out, I managed to get it under, but eh, it's fine. I never succeed at these anyway. It was... Good enough. All right, so let's get into long-form things we saw as adults that we may have missed as children. All right, so, yeah, I had to cut out a lot there because you have to. But this, uh, I guess I want to start off in saying, like, I'm a fan of Alfred Hitchcock movies, though I definitely haven't seen all of them and hadn't seen this one before. And I felt like this was not one of his best. How did you feel watching it? Um... I would agree. I so it has moments that that I enjoy, and well, I will say the the parts that, about this that I like the most are usually the music, um, which is not the first time that I have probably said that about a movie. But sure. it's this is actually I don't think I ever saw this as a kid, but you know I had seen it before, and as soon as I heard the music at the beginning, I was like, hey, I recognize this. So. <laughs> So it's definitely, like, if it's music you have heard before, you will know it when you hear it. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Iconic sure. music. So if so, you've heard it before, you will recognize it when hearing it again. And if you have not heard it before, you... It'll be new to you because you haven't heard it before. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Okay, great. Um, I, I So, yeah, I would agree with you, I guess. it It was not one of my favorite stories. I think I could follow it better this time than the first time that I watched it because there there are just some things it, which we may get into when we talk about characters, but somebody which I don't really know exactly what their relationship is or why they are always together, but yeah. it's like his ex from college or something yeah. is always there. And at, at one point in the movie, she gets really jealous at him about something, and it makes you think that she's going to be the one who caused the problems or what, like at least to me like because they're trying to be all mysterious about it and try to make you solve the mystery and at there are points where it sounds like they're trying to point you towards her because she's oh, being all jealous about him hanging out with another blonde girl but then all of a sudden they're best friends again two minutes later so i <laughs> i don't like it was like a separate plot line that never really finished i don't it was yes. weird 
I feel the same way, uh, because this is a film of two halves, and she is only in the first half, and then she just decides to leave and is never referenced again. Um, and because she didn't come up in my synopsis, uh, we're talking about Midge, who is Scotty's best friend, I want to say, like, and, like, confidant, he spends a lot of time with her, they hang out a yeah, lot. Yeah, that's right, like, he would, it starts off with her, uh, I guess, he is in her office, or her house, right. or something, I don't, I, I don't know what their thing is, like, because he mentioned something about, um, how he's single, and has, has only been engaged once, and it was to her for like three weeks or something. And she looks all and she upset called it about off. it. Yeah, like he specifically points out that she didn't want to marry him, and then they just like kept hanging out. And then she clearly still has feelings for him, but I think he's moved on. And that's a confusing place as an audience member. So it's like, well, are they gonna get together? Are they like gonna remain friends? Uh, but the, the scene, I have a note on the scene that you mentioned, which is where they're in her office. This is immediately after the opening scene, which is a police chase where he gets his vertigo. Uh, they're racing over rooftops. He slips and is on the ledge. A cop goes and tries to save him and falls to his death. Uh, and he witnesses the cop dying, which makes him afraid of heights and ruins his police career. But immediately after that, I thought we were going to cut to Stuart in a wheelchair looking out a rear window. But instead, <laughs> uh, the note I have is like, no, he's in an easy chair complaining of a corset while his female companion draws boobs. Yeah, so the, he he is walking with a cane, though, which I'm... Did he fall off of that roof and survive? Like, they never show how he got down, but then suddenly he has a cane to walk with as if he was injured. But they don't really show how he got injured. Yeah, I think the implication is he missed the jump on the rooftop and caught the side of a building on his chest. And so, like, that's the injury he's recovering from. The corset he is wearing is to help uh, keep his chest from expanding, yeah. maybe? I don't know. Medical science. I've never claimed to be a medical doctor. But that was my understanding, was just, like, that was the injury he was... He was saved from falling off the building, but, like, still sustained that brute force against his chest. Well, and then in that same scene, it's when he announces his brilliant plan to save himself from his new illness. Yeah, there's a real misunderstanding of mental health here. But, yeah, <laughs> what, what's his plan, Mark? Well, he decided that in order to cure himself of vertigo, he's going to take it in small steps where he'll get up on a chair or a stepladder and look up and look down and look up <laughs> and look down. And then he'll and then eventually get higher and higher until he cures himself of feeling sick from being an, at high heights. Oh, I thought you were going to mention because um, he talks to Midge about this and she mentions oh. what the doctors recommended, which was. He may have vertigo for the rest of his life, unless there's another trauma which could cure vertigo. So, like, <laughs> apparently this is working off of Flintstone science, where, like, if you just take another hit to the head, you'll get your own personality back. I mean, that's how life works. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> In addition to a real misunderstanding of mental health, there's also this 
1950s stigma on mental health, because part of the reason he is hired as a private eye is the husband thinks his wife is going insane, and then um, he can't commit her, he can't bring in a professional, he has to hire a friend who's a private eye to tail her and figure things out so that they can kind of not make it public knowledge that she is losing her mind. Whereas, like, if you had just called in a doctor, uh, maybe she could get actual help. Now, it is revealed later that his wife isn't having those problems. That's another woman being portrayed by Judy Barton. But, like, the film starts off with this understanding that if somebody's wife is going insane, we should just sweep that under a rug, hide her in a basement or an attic for a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, and I... I think part of it was her going insane, but he, the guy, uh, I don't remember his name. I've but got it here. It's not really important. They say it like once. It's not. But so he says that because originally he says, well, I want you to follow my wife. And uh, Jimmy Stewart makes a weird face and he says, oh, no, no, it's not that. It's that I want you to keep her safe from someone who's dead. And then he makes an even weirder face. It's it's partly because she's going insane, but partly because he wants to make sure that she is safe. Right. I guess, which I guess you would still call a doctor for that to make her, if she is going insane, then you would call the doctor to save her, maybe. But yes. So the guy's name, which is very not important, uh, is Gavin Elster, um, who is married to Madeline and believes that she is being uh, possessed by a ghost. So this is a weird follow-up to Poltergeist, <laughs> which, to me, this was very unlike Hitchcock, because I understand Hitchcock to be, like, the master of suspense, and the master of creating a very tense situations where characters make realistic choices to try to resolve this very tense situation that they've been put into, but he doesn't really do a lot of supernatural things and being possessed by a ghost like introducing that as the basis for his movie even though that turns out not to be what's happening that supernatural aspect just doesn't speak to hitchcock as much as just like realistic it, life situations yeah i mean the supernatural doesn't sound a lot like him but you do get the mystery suspense of it as it goes on because it orig originally he he denied you know, he's like, oh, I don't want to get involved with that. That's not really my thing. And I'm trying to retire now because I'm injured or what? It's sick, and I guess injured and sick. <laughs> but anyway, he didn't really want to get in. And the friend says, well, we're going to be out at dinner tonight. Stop by if you want to just to see what she looks like. Uh -huh. And if you want to follow her, you can <laughs> kind of thing. And I guess what he just decides that he's going to take the job because she's so beautiful or something. Yeah. There's kind of that implication because she, he does see her there and notices her and you get the sense that she notices him as well. Though in this scene, it could be easily written off as it's a beautiful woman walking through a restaurant that notices a man who happens to be looking at her. And she brushes it off because a lot of men happen to look at her. So my question is, in this scene, was that actually his wife? No, I don't believe so. So, so that's the thing. I think she knew because she was in on the whole thing. 
I think she knew that he was there looking at her and she was purposely making herself more visible to him. Does that make sense? Yes, I think, so. I think you're right there. So I want to step back just one point and we can continue talking about his pursuit of quote-unquote Madeline uh, to bring up this book that I have that I got some information from uh, because... I, from what I understand, Hitchcock didn't do like a lot of promotion or a lot of interviews. He was a very reclusive person when not like on set or directing a movie. But later in his life, he sat down with another filmmaker, uh, Francois Truffaut. And they, I think they had met each other a few times before. And Hitchcock knew him to be someone who knew what they were talking about when it came to filmmaking. And so he agreed to have this interview with him and talk about a lot of his work to someone who had a real perspective on what it was like to make a movie and whatnot. And so this was kind of the definitive Hitchcock interview that he wouldn't give the press. And he does talk about uh, Vertigo a bit in that book. And I think part of the reason for me it didn't feel like a Hitchcock is that it is an adaptation of a book that was... The book was intentionally written to be adapted to a Hitchcock movie, but I think that book also pursues certain ideas that Hitchcock wouldn't put necessarily in a film. So I think because it is based off of this work, Hitchcock wanted to be true to it and may have introduced some concepts that aren't naturally his style into the story. Uh, so anyway, the book is called, uh, I'm gonna butcher this French. That's not the title, but that's what, that's an introduction. <laughs> um, the novel is called, It's a great book. Diantre Le More. It is by Bolio and Narsejak. Um, the French translates directly to From the Dead, but in English translations, it's also been translated to The Living and the Dead. And I think for me, uh, we can get into it and get back to his pursuit of Madeline. In fact, in his pursuit of Madeline is where I found the hardest times to keep up and keep going with this movie. Because it is adapted from a book, there are a lot of things that I think would work really well if I could understand the main character's inner monologue at a given time that don't work well in film where it is just a visual narrative. Because when he is pursuing Madeline, you see him driving in a car and him following the car. For like 10 minutes. Yes. And like <laughs> the driving scenes are so long in this. And yeah. so much of his pursuit is just like, well, she goes to get flowers. And we see every single minute of her going to get flowers, including pulling up into an alley, going into a back room, talking to a shopkeep, Scotty following her, doing the same thing, then Scotty getting back to his car just before she gets back to her car, and then we go to a museum where she sits in front of a portrait, and then we go to a church where she visits a grave, and then it's just like one thing after another after another, and we see every step of this journey. But I think part of that is just different era of filmmaking sure. as well because a lot of a lot of those older movies like that will include that whole sequence as well it's not just this one but i think yeah watching it now those are the periods of the movie where it just starts dragging and it's like okay let's get to the next point so we can keep the story moving right <laughs> and like Having seen his other work, I do expect more from Hitchcock. And yes, you do say that this is a product of its time, and I certainly agree that, like, 
driving scenes like this are very prominent in movies of this time. But from from Hitchcock, who is a master at making things suspenseful, like where things are drawn out, but you still draw the audience in to see what's going to happen next, these scenes are very boring. They don't draw the audience in. The suspense is maybe where she going to go next, but like, it just, it goes so long and the places that she go aren't inherently interesting. And so it just, it's, and it's not only just the fact that we're following where she's going. It's like you see the view from the driver's seat of him going around a corner and going down a street and then going around another corner and going down that street. <laughs> and it was just, it if it was just like, hey, I'm following this person, you see a shot of him in the car, and then you see a shot of the flower shop and them getting out of the car. Instead, you see them driving through the entire town to get there first. Right. And so, like, for a visual narrative, modern movies are certainly better at this, where, like, they would cut it down to the very important scenes. Like, every scene has to establish something. And so this whole... 15 minutes of him falling or everywhere in town would be cut down to like a five second montage of we see her doing something and we see him hidden watching her. That establishes everything we need to know from these scenes that take way too long to establish that. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one that thought that, though, because that was something I was going to bring up. Not necessarily at this point, but later on in the movie, he runs into... I guess it's it's still before she dies, um, but he ends up with her in his apartment, and then then the next day he goes following her again and follows her back to his apartment. That was and it's the the same thing where you're just driving or in the car and there's no dialogue at all. It's just music the whole time, and I think I think that one was worse because. At the beginning, at least she's stopping places and you're wondering why she's going where she is because you just heard the story about how she's being possessed and she said she only remembers being at this beach, but her car had 95 miles on the thing, which I think the guy said that she had 95 miles on her speedometer, which (laughs) is also not correct, but... Uh, so, like, I think at least then you're still into it and you're trying to figure out, well, why was she going there? Where did she go? And you have that interest. But later on, it's just he's following her again and they're just driving around in circles on the streets. So I think the second one is even worse. Well, yes, though that's I think that's actually the third one, but it doesn't really matter because the second one is her following her again the next day and her falling in the lake. And the second one is just him revisiting every single setting that we saw before on the first one. It is replaying. I wonder if they even shot different camera angles for that, because it seems like him chasing her the first day is the exact same thing as him chasing her the second day. It just, they end up at the, at a bridge at the end of it. But for the, the third day, the reason I found it so hard to watch is I think part of it is that everything's in black and white. And so when he is chasing her, you're seeing his viewpoint through his windshield watching her car. And because it is in black and white, it's hard to visually distinguish which one is her car. And so I took a little bit. It's just like, okay, which one of these cars is important? Okay, that's her car. That's the important <laughs> one. And then it turns and it cuts away again. And then the you next must scene. You have seen a different version because mine was in color. <laughs> hmm. 
Maybe so, I'm remembering it in black and white. Maybe it was in color. Anyway. I don't know. I'm just saying, because her, her car was green, and it was the big point because... At least it was something that I picked up on. Shoot. Because her car is green that he's following, and then later on, after she has died, he sees this green car again and is obsessed with it. And then when he meets... What's her face? Judy Barton. Judy, who was the wife, but not the wife. She's wearing a green dress when she meets him again. Oh, yeah. And then later on, he tries to turn her into Madeline, and the neon lights outside her apartment are green and lighting up the whole room green. Now, I don't know if that was on purpose stylistically, but it was something that I saw. So, so. you're right. So... You may have seen it black and white because they could have filmed didn't, it in color. Because I remember white, but... the green stuff that you were <laughs> mentioning. Uh, so peek behind the curtain. I watched this maybe a week ago, and when I prep for an episode, I don't rewatch a film. I go over my notes so I can get through the film quicker. So you're right. The version I saw was in color, but I do remember trying to figure out what car was important, and then she turns, and then it cutting again. So the problem still persisted for me. Was I, I was still having trouble during that chase scene when it establishes a shot of him following her, like getting into, okay, he's following her. This is an important car. And then her turning it and immediately cutting away and having that happen over and over again, because she takes a very circuitous route of her turning like five or six different times. And he ends up back where he lives. It's just like, okay, this, this all could go. I don't, this is <laughs> yeah. not important. Yeah, I mean, you've already established two days in a row that he's following her around, and you know that's what he's supposed to be doing as his job, so you don't have to see the car going around a corner every time. So, the but. green light did came up in that, uh, came up, good God, did come up in that, um, <laughs> that interview, uh, book that I have, uh, though you notice way more green stuff than even Hitchcock mentioned in that. So I believe the green was intentional, but he was having this interview years later and looking back on it. But the two points that he points out is there's a green effect parallel from the first time that um, he sees Madeline at the cemetery and pieces together like the Carlotta thing. Hitchcock shot that in what he called a fog filter, which did give a green tint to the outfit that Madeline was wearing, even though it's a gray suit. And then when Judy gets her entire look together to look like Madeline for Scotty, there is the green tint from the neon light on her from her window. And it's supposed to make the parallel of that he, in both of these instances, he sees the same women um, or same woman dressed up as Madeline. In both times, he's seeing Judy dressed up as Madeline. But... He doesn't know that, but as an audience, we know that, and we can make that connection. That makes more sense, I guess. Because I was wondering when she comes out of the bathroom at the end, and it's all green lit up, but it also looks foggy, and I'm like, why is there so much smoke in their room? <laughs> <But> <laughs> I guess that was on purpose. Well, yes, I think part of it, especially in that scene, was he wanted to see her as Madeline, and so... Even though this is the same woman dressed up the same way he saw her before, I think that hazes him trying to make the woman he loved come to life again, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. and, well, we haven't really gotten there yet, but that whole, that oh whole boy. scenario oh is... Oh boy, that <laughs> scenario, which was mentioned by Hitchcock in the interview, which we will get to, is 
the thing that attracted him to the project. And to me, that's that's the thing that spoke to me. It's just like, okay, this is a Hitchcock thing now. So we'll get to it. Well, I guess that's not where I was going with it, but yeah. I So, well, and what's weird to me and this movie is a lot of things, but <laughs> it's interesting because you come to, when it starts, your understanding of the story is, okay, this guy's been hired as the private detective. He's following this guy's wife. Uh, he starts, to, he saves her from killing herself mm-hmm. when she tries to jump in the bay. And then um, suddenly somehow they start a relationship affair because they fall in love from him stalking her. Yes. And, and then then when he chases her up this tower, she she falls off and dies. And it's kind of like that's the point where a lot of movies would be like, okay, that's the end. He did his job and then something, and then it just kept on going. And that was the part for me again, where it started to drag more after all the car scenes, you get to this thing where he's in the hospital and that part just goes on for 20 minutes before he even meets Judy. And it's just like, okay, is the movie still going or is that the end? I feel like this is certainly within the time period that movies had intermissions. So I do yeah. feel like this film is more like a play where hit, the woman falling to her death is certainly the end of the first act and the second act begins with him in the hospital. So like, but seeing it strung together one scene right after another, you're right. There is a drastic change in the pace of the film where it was just this very exciting moment and now we're back to square one and it's jarring seeing them one right after another. And you had mentioned even that he goes to the mental institute or sanitarium. Yes. Well, sure. <laughs> he goes there. You said he got healed and then went out and then met Judy. But I'm not sure he fully got healed before then because he still was going back to all the places he had seen Madeline and thinking about her all the time and then sees this girl that looks like her and decides he's going to chase her around. The, I believe the phrase I used was recovered. To an extent, because in the hospital, we see him so clinically depressed that he doesn't get up from a chair. He doesn't have a conversation with Midge, who is there trying to visit him and trying to make him feel better. Like, he has given up on life to the extent where he is content in just sitting in a chair all day, and that's his life. And so he recovers from that depression enough to be able to get out and live life a little bit more than he was. But yes, he's certainly not over Madeline when he leaves the hospital. And this is a, this is another point where I feel like, well, one, this time period, we didn't have a good sense of uh, mental health. And that is how it's portrayed in this film during the sanitarium scene. Where, oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, where Midge comes and tries to play music to make him feel better. And then her advice to him is just try harder. <laughs> As if all mental illnesses can be combated and defeated if the person having them just tries a little bit harder. And so, what did you think of? I guess it was symbolic of him, of his depression or his going crazy or whatever. His It was like a dream sequence yeah. almost where yeah. there was like random animated parts mixed in with it. And I, it I was, didn't love that. I guess I could. I mean, I had to try. 
I didn't really like it either, but I, I guess you could see what they were trying to go for. I don't know if it was just that was how they depicted dreams then, or if that was their way of saying the mental instability or I think something. it's more along the lines of mental instability, because it does happen right after the church scene, where we see Madeline fall to her death. And I think that's very much him trying to reconcile his grief of losing this person that he had just fallen in love with, and not really understanding what happened to her because just before she goes to her death they are kissing in a courtyard he declares his love for her and she tells him if i leave you you'll know that i loved you more or less yeah and so like that's very confusing and that he loses touch with her because she's gone and so like i feel like that whole visual language that they were trying to establish of like all the weird technicolor mumbo jumbo uh (laughs) is just him not being able to reconcile with and his descent into madness for a bit and it would make sense like you were saying about intermission like if that was the entrance back into the after the intermission so you could say okay now we see he's going crazy after everything that happened and now he's in the sanitarium so yeah, before we get away from the, the first act too much, because I feel like we're we're near oh, yeah. there. Uh I wanna do I do want to talk more about Midge, because she is only in the first act. <laughs> though I guess she's at the beginning of the second act, she does visit the, the hospital. But huh, the relationship she has with him at one point just becomes so cringeworthy because she understands now that he is falling for the woman that he's pursuing. Uh and he shows her a picture of Carlotta, which is the one that Madeline is visiting at the museum, uh, and he finds that Carlotta looks a lot like Madeline, down to the hairdo, down to the bouquet that both of them have. And to try to win him back, Midge paints, like goes through however many hours it takes to paint a portrait and paints herself in the same pose, in the same dress, as that Carlotta painting, but with Midge's face. And just like, (laughs) I understand that Midge was trying to make a large romantic gesture because she proposes to give this to him as a present, but it's also just like, ooh, ooh, you're trying way too hard. And this was still, because this was shortly after she had driven by and saw Madeline leaving his apartment. right. And she she made some angry comment about, well, now now I see what you're doing, Scotty, or whatever. And then she gives him this painting as a gift. And I, I don't know, I can't tell if it's like, here's a romantic gift, I'm trying to, to pull you back to me. Or if it was like, I'm angry and jealous, so I'm going to give this thing to you and make you upset. But then after he's like, oh, no, that's that's terrible. We can't hang out anymore or whatever. And he just walks out. Then she gets all upset and ruins the painting. So it's like, I think she thought it was a romantic yes. thing. But at the same time, it's just weird. Yes, it is very strange. And it I don't know what it has. It doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the story, really, other than her mm-hmm. This is another him. thing I that I think would be fleshed out more in a book narrative than it is given time in this movie. Yeah. If we know more of Midge's motivations, what she was, her internal thoughts, this could make a lot more sense. But it just comes off as so creepy in this film. Like, it's weird enough if somebody had 
painted a large portrait of themselves and wanted to give it to me as a present. And then they paint themselves in the same image of someone I'm currently interested in, but they change that person's face to their face. That's so much weirder. And then when she tells him to go look at it, she's sitting behind the portrait in the same pose as the lady in the painting. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's I I don't see it's the, like the whole thing to me seemed like a setup where she was trying to make him upset, but then when he does get upset, she doesn't like oh, it. Oh, so see, I, don't, I saw it more as I can be the person that you love. Here's me dressed exactly like the person you love. Don't I look pretty? I this is what you want, right? This is what you're into. Uh, and then he rejects her because mm. she's not being her. She's trying to become the person that he's interested in. And he doesn't want that from her. And then she's like, oh, I'm such an idiot. But then, but then when someone, when he meets somebody else, he forces them to be in that yes, image. Yes, and we will get to so... that uh, very shortly. The last note I have on Midge was when she's in the hospital, like which is the last time we see her, she goes and talks to the doctor. Just like, well, when is he going to get better? And the doctor's like, well... I don't know, six months, maybe a year. And Mitch is just, this is the point. Not after he goes to the hospital. This is the point. Mitch is just like, well, I guess he's never going to get over her. And then we never see her again. And so, yep. like, uh, I guess this was the final now, straw. Did for you her. look up the actress at all? Not for Mitch. I know, I know okay. Madeline. I did Bart. not either, but. I, I thought she seemed familiar to me, like maybe she has been in other Hitchcock movies, but I didn't actually ever look it up. Uh, I've got it. Her name is Barbara Bell Geddes, or Geddes, not sure how that is pronounced. From what I can see from our movie history, I don't see Hitchcock titles. Oh, she was in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, if you saw that. But yeah, that's the only the only thing related to Hitchcock besides this. Unless she was just in something else that I've seen, but who knows? I, I, you know, Hitchcock had reused some Were actors. Were you a, a fan times, of Dallas? So. Apparently she was in Dallas. I have never seen a single episode. All right, well, back to this <laughs> film. We can, we can move on to the second act now. The last thing, I just wanted to talk about uh, Mitch leaving... Mitch. Midge leaving the story halfway through and just, like, never being addressed again. Yeah, I don't, this is where, again, she was just a weird character to begin with because it was like, the the movie, well, it opened with the police chase scene, but the very next scene is him hanging out with her, and it's kind of like establishing that they are, have some close relationship, and should, like, she'll be there for the movie, and she's there to support him and be his friend or whatever, and I don't, I don't know, she was just weird to me, I couldn't figure out what she was supposed to be. I think she is supposed to film, like, multiple roles in the story, but I don't think she does any one particularly well. Like, her character is supposed to be uh, the the friend-slash-rival of Madeline, but he doesn't ever really question which one he's going to pursue. It's always Madeline for him. And then she's also supposed to be, like, the detective's sidekick, where he can kind of talk to her about the investigation that he's doing and seek some help on figuring stuff out. Because she does help help him track down information about the area 
uh, regarding Carlotta, and we get Carlotta's backstory from a bookseller who's just very old and happens to know a lot of things. But yeah, and that's really the only time she does that. Yeah, I just can't figure her out. But like you said before, maybe as a book, you would hear, you know, you'd get the inner workings of her mind that might help figure out what she's doing there or what the, her motivation is in the different scenes. In any story, I think you're right that uh, she should have had more to do to be a more important character. And also she should have come back in some way towards the end. Like, I feel like her story is unresolved and he just leaves it like that. Well, and the end is quite abrupt. Yeah, that is true. So, you, I mean, maybe after that, they would. They're, today you would probably see a little epilogue scene of him hanging out with her again to resolve all the things that had happened throughout the movie. But now it's like, the movie ends and it's done. Yeah, so. you would have gotten the, uh, the scene like at the end of Psycho where they explain the mental illness part of it instead of just letting the movie end. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so let's go on to the... The second act of this film, uh, which in the interview, Hitchcock was interested in this film because the first part is all about Madeline. The second part is all about Judy, uh, even though Judy and Madeline are the same person. So it was just kind of weird to me that that and maybe again, a product of its time. But he meets her and she looks similar, which is fine. But then everything he does is to make her look like the girl that he loves and she didn't like it but she did it anyway and at the end she explains it i guess explains it away as well i loved you too and that's why i let you do all this to change me back into her but i don't it just seems weird that you would just let someone make you do all this stuff i completely agree and i think that is supposed to make everyone feel uncomfortable Uh, So one of the major differences between the movie and the book it is based on is in the book, the reveal that Judy is Madeline doesn't come until the very end of the story. That would make a lot more sense. Hitchcock put it in the start of the second act where we first meet Judy. It's revealed to the audience, but not to Scotty, so that... Hitchcock wanted to set up this suspense where we are always wondering what is Scotty going to do when he finds out? And that's, that is the running suspense Hitchcock wanted to set up during this act. I don't know how successful it is because. I, there were times where I felt like he already knew and that's why he was forcing her to do this was to be like, aha, see, I was right. And then, and then she would realize suddenly that he knew all along. But I don't know. I, 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 that was another thing where since it's split into two parts like that, you have the one climax and you think the movie is going to be done. It's like, oh, there was a sad, depressing thing happened. And, but that will be the end because that was the big, exciting part. And then it gets, then it gets dragged out again a bit. And then suddenly you get the big twist reveal in the middle of the movie instead of at the end, which a lot of times they leave it for the end to be the big surprise. And so to me, it just kind of gave away the story. Right. And I, I guess I can see you want it to be suspenseful 
and you want to wait for what Scotty's going to do, but I, I guess it didn't come across that way to me. It was just kind of like, well, I'm going to write you this note and tell you all the secret stories that happened, and now the audience knows everything, but the movie's going to go on for another 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Huh. Though without that, though, with just him pursuing Judy, I think the motivations of Judy of why she's still there wouldn't make sense to an audience. Right? Because you're, you're having that problem even knowing that she's, is Madeline and that she loved him. It's just like, this is very strange behavior. The note I had, um, because it takes him a while to make Judy Madeline to the extent that they go out to a dress shop and Judy tries on several different dresses, but none of them are what Madeline would wear. And so none of them are acceptable. And he keeps, going until he finds the one exactly like what Madeline wore. And then they go and buy shoes and get the ones exactly like Madeline would wear. Mm. And then she has to go and dye her hair, but it's not the right hairstyle, so she's got to fix that too. And, like, this is a long process of making this woman look like another woman that he loved. Now, a couple of notes I have on this. Uh, one, I want to give... A lot of credit to Kim Novak, because it is the same actress for both roles, and she does a phenomenal job of portraying these yes. two women differently, even though the whole time she is Judy Barton, just half the time it's Judy Barton playing Madeline, which is a, a <laughs> weird thing to get across, but I think everyone listening gets it. The way that she changes, the way that she acts, is so subtle. Like, a worse actor would make bigger choices to try to distinguish the two women here. And the wonderful thing about Kim Novak is the small things that she does. Watching her, she feels like a different person, even though it is exactly the same face. I mean, I she has a different accent when he meets her in the apartment uh, after he stalks her around town. Sure. <laughs> um, and then, I, I mean, I think her what would you call it? Her body language yes. is a little different too, but yeah, it's not, it's not a huge difference, but it's enough that you can tell it's not supposed to be the same person. And obviously the hair is different. And all so that. like Madeline is certainly more reserved, a bit more uptight, a bit more proper. And, um, Judy, Judy Barton, Judy. uh, is a lot more free flowing. She seems a lot more common in a sense. Uh, but I really loved her as Madeline because I felt like whatever she was saying, wherever she was when she was talking to Scotty, she always sounded like she had the upper hand. I love that portrayal of this upper class woman where even in a situation where she wakes up in his home naked after being saved from a river. And so she comes out to his, her, his living room dressed only in a robe. This is a very vulnerable position she has found herself in, but it still seems like she has control of the situation. Just like through the way that she talks to him, the way that she presents herself. I mean, I see what you're saying, but I think that whole thing was planned in the first place, so she kind of already had control of the situation. Though I did want to talk about that scene specifically, because you do say that, and I agree, her falling in the lake definitely planned they had planned for scotty to save her but i don't know how well you can plan being blacked out for a couple of hours so like in the reality of this world 
she is supposed to fall in the bay and get saved by him, and that's what starts their close relationship, which is what the guy that hired him intended. What happens is she falls in, and she gets knocked out from the river, um, and so or the bay, rather, and he drives her back to his home. He undresses her. He hangs up her clothing in the kitchen so that they can dry, and she is asleep in the bed for... I want to say a couple of hours until she comes to because of the phone call. Now, if all this is staged, was she just playing at being unconscious that whole time? <laughs> I mean, that's the only part that that would be difficult to explain. I suppose. I mean, I you you could pretend to be unconscious as long as a doctor isn't looking at you. I suppose, but you'd have to do that for a long time, right? And let someone undress you while pretending to be unconscious. Exactly. Something else about this scene, which has nothing to do with her her being unconscious, when later on she says something, or they're, you know, I think they're kind of playing back and forth because they're, they're like, he's trying to get answers from her, but she knows that she's trying to play him, so she's kind of being cryptic with the answers, but he also doesn't want her to know that he's been following her, so there's kind of this back and forth where what did they discuss something about oh well do you ever have you have you ever done anything like this before and she and she says like what but eventually then it then it's like oh well you could have just brought me to my house well how would i do that i don't know where you live and then you could have put me in my car but i suppose you don't know which one it was and he says oh well yeah it was the only other car there i have it parked outside right now well then did he drive her car back or did he drive his car or how did they both get there? That's a, that's a great question that never gets resolved. <laughs> I think Hitchcock had a comment on this scene that he loved the implication that, because it's never said specifically, but there's an implication that Scotty, while undressing her, did see her naked. And when she wakes up, her assumption is that she is just woken up after... She wakes up naked in a bed. The assumption is that she has slept with somebody. And she finds out, well, this is not my husband. I don't know this man. How did I get here? Why did you sleep with me? <laughs> like, there's that kind of implication there. Yeah. But uh, we can get back to the discussion we were having on Scotty... <laughs> making Judy look like Madeline. Ugh. Because both, I felt the same uncomfortableness here, because both knowing that she is the same woman from before that he fell in love with, both, like, the fact and the fiction of this scene are horrible. So in the fiction, he met a girl that happened to look a lot like a woman he fell in love with, and now he is dolling her up in the quite literal sense where he is just using this body that looks a certain way and dressing it in the right clothes and getting the right hairstyle to make her appear more like this woman he fell in love with. And that's horrible. And then you notice as soon as he has her all dressed up, then they're going to go out on a date or whatever the next night, and he's all normal again. He's oh, yeah, not yeah. acting crazy, and he's not obsessed with Madeline anymore. Just suddenly everything's fine. Uh-huh. In the fiction of that scene, he, the woman knows him. The woman knows who Madeline is, knows that this man fell in love with her because she is Madeline. And she is letting this man do all of these things and letting him live out his madness 
so that he will love her again. It's just like, oh boy. Both sides of it unsettling. Yeah. Because, I mean, I could, so he's kind of got mental issues. Oh, for sure. Which. 100%. I mean, I mean, so that, that does, I it doesn't make it right but you can explain it away as well he's got something wrong in his brain so he's obsessed with this and he's so focused on it for her it's like this guy that you know all the things you said you know that he loved that he loved you as this other woman and you know who that woman was and you know what he's trying to do and yet you still go along with it just because you want to please him and i think part of that from her side is this era's misunderstanding of mental health, where this man is obsessed with a certain idea, and maybe he won't be obsessed anymore if we let him pursue that idea to the umpteenth degree and get it perfect. But letting him pursue that is just going to make him... Like, letting him pursue a little bit is just going to make him more and more obsessed with getting it exactly right, and he will become more and more... uh, animated more and more uh, animosity coming from him. Like, he could get violent to a certain degree if it is so close but not perfect. Like, her coming back with blonde hair but not the hair put up exactly the way that he wanted it to be. Like, being so close to that but not getting it exactly right would drive, like, could drive him to violence. Luckily, he's dealing with a woman who can do it perfectly because she's done it before and that's what he fell in love with. But if this was any other woman, it's not going to be exactly the way he wants it to be. Something else is interesting to me that he would come across this lady, just happen to see her in the streets and suddenly decide, hey, you look exactly like this other lady and that's just normal that you have the exact same face. And I'm I'm surprised that he believed that this was a the actual woman, like, because we see him going around town just before he meets Judy, where he assumes he's seen Madeline, and he gets a little closer, and he realizes, oh, that that isn't Madeline, it's just someone uh, in her car. And then he sees Madeline again, it's like, oh, that wasn't Madeline, it's just someone in a very similar dress of Madeline. And it just, we see that a couple of times, and then he sees Judy, and he's like, like oh, could that, that's not, but it could, hmm, I'm going to pursue that. So I'm, sur- I'm, pers- I'm surprised that he didn't just assume, oh, I'm seeing Madeline again, and just let her go. So he does have lots of mental issues that we have discussed. Sure. So the movie's title is Vertigo. Uh-huh. That hardly ever comes up. <laughs> which came up once when they ran up the tower and Madeline died, and then kind of again at the end. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because he, at the beginning of the movie, there's a suggestion that the only way to cure his vertigo is by having another traumatic experience. Halfway through the film, he gets another traumatic experience, doesn't cure vertigo. Nope. So, like, even this weird medical thing that it posits is a solution to his problem, turns out, nah, not a solution to the problem. (laughs) I mean, I could. So the movie starts off with this is the cause of him working from home, retiring, whatever he's doing, and that's how he gets this private eye gig, and that's specifically why they picked him is because they knew he'd be scared in the tower. But to me, having the title based on this this thing and then barely ever bringing it up until the very end is kind of strange. I think Vertigo works at a 
way better title for that man going around the edge of an apartment building. Because at least there, you were dealing with heights the entire time. Like, I yeah. think uh, The Living and the Dead, the, the book title it was based on, is more apt. Uh, but, like, Hitchcock loves his single word titles. And to an extent, the guy does get vertigo. I mean, they could also call it, what, uh, acrophobia? Or is that the fear of the outside? One of those. No, acro is right, because he even says that at the beginning. It's not a great title in that it, it's, it doesn't encapsulate the main thing that is interesting from a Hitchcock standpoint. I feel, yeah, like, to me, the the main point in this story is the love story and then having her die and then suddenly meeting her again and finding out that it's the same person, even though you thought she was dead. So I had this thought watching it when he is trying to make a new woman, new woman, new women, anyway, a new woman <laughs> look like a woman that has died. That, to me, did seem like the most Hitchcock idea throughout the entire film where it is a man trapped in the past trying to make this new woman, a future with a new woman, resemble the past that he had. And in the interview, Hitchcock talked about it and confirmed that, like, that is what attracted him first to the project. Just like, that's a very interesting idea, that it's a very suspenseful thing, because it is all about what is going to happen when the truth is revealed. I guess I got the feeling earlier on that him being a former detective or i think he was a detective i that was the idea i got anyway that he even though he had the his depression and his other issues that somewhere in the back of his mind he was suspicious of this and was trying to put it play it off as all of it but but then but then really he was dressing her up because he wanted to prove if he was right or not oh i see but it see then then at the end he like he doesn't apparently he didn't realize it until he saw the necklace which I guess I kind of thought he knew already and then that just proved it at the ah, end but interesting yeah I I never saw him as still pursuing the case after it was done uh because I don't think he was a very good detective because <laughs> uh, I think even in the beginning uh he was just kind of a patrolman. Like, that's at least the other people on that roof. The man who falls off was just a patrol man. Mm -hmm. But he was in... I know, he was in, he was in plain clothes, but, like, I, I, don't, I don't think he was a good detective because we see him pursuing Madeline, and, like, there are so many points where she would have seen him, and possibly she did see him because she knew she was being pursued, and she just didn't say anything. But, like... The way that he follows the car, he always follows directly behind her car. That is very noticeable, and she would pick up on it if he did that for an entire day. And then when she visits her in, like, certain different places around San Francisco, he is always very, very close to where she is, and he is the only other person around. She would notice him. At one point, uh, back at in the first act again... When when they're in his apartment and he's asking her all these questions about her history and where she's been and whatever, and she starts – or I guess it's – no, after that, she's telling him about a dream she had because she was so upset by it. And she's telling about all these places she saw in her dream and he says, well, of course, that it all makes sense now because you've been there. And it's like, well, how would you know that if you weren't there following me around? <laughs> so 
<laughs> he kind of gives it away right there. Yeah, I want to say, like, we've talked about his weird relationship with Judy and his weird relationship with Midge. I feel he also has a weird relationship with Madeline in that he is supposed to be working for her husband. And he knows her to be married to an old friend of his. And yet he pursues her romantically without any sort of feeling that he shouldn't be doing that. And again, maybe that's something that's explored more in the book where like maybe. he's tormented inside about it or something, but you don't really see it in the film. Yeah, it's like he saw a pretty lady. It's just like, that pretty lady's gonna be mine. It's just like, now, what are you doing? So at the beginning, he's talking to Midge and talks about how he's always been single because single, what's his name? His, the detective's name? Yeah. Uh, Scotty is Scotty, one name he goes by. He's, he just called himself like Lonely Scotty or Lonesome Scotty, something where he's like, because he's, he's never been married. Or also, whatever. Scotty is a weird nickname for a guy named John. His name is John Ferguson. Yeah, but yeah, so he's always talking about how he's always been single. He's talking to Midge about it at the beginning, but now suddenly he's obsessed with this girl and decides that's the one for him. So. Yeah, he just sees a pretty lady and come hell or high water, he's got to have that pretty lady. <laughs> like, regardless of who it hurts, regardless of who she happens to already be married to, and just like, it turns out to be okay because this is an actress portraying Madeline instead of the real Madeline, but he doesn't know that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I feel like we've skipped around a lot, but I wasn't sure what else we you have. have if you're ready to get. Well, I do want to get to the, the end scene. Uh, though, though the, the other things I have, let's see. Oh, one more thing we did talk about in the creepiness with duty besides dressing her up to look like Madeline is that we've a early in the film. It establishes that John Ferguson is a man of means. Like when he retired from the police force, he was just going to retire to a life of leisure. And so he is rich. And when he meets Judy, <laughs> he kind of, he very much offers to her, well, you could just come and live with me and I'll take care of you and you don't need to work. You just need to look like Madeline all the time. And just like, oh boy. So not only are you going to have this woman dress up like this other person. I wonder if that's a product of the times again, though, because I feel like maybe, maybe the, it was more of the mentality of the man is going to go work and take care of the woman. But at the same time, they weren't really in a full relationship or whatever at that point yet. So I... yes. So there is a thing that I know about in film history. It was big in film noir, which is, is a little bit late for, but it still kind of fits in that genre where you have an older man falling in love with a beautiful young woman, which this is, this has in this film. Um, because Scotty is way older than she is. I would guess maybe. 15 years to 20 years does that seem accurate yeah, like it's at least 10 he goes what she's supposed to be 26 i believe because there's the story about oh well the carlotta killed herself when she was 26 right. and he learns this story just before she goes and jumps in the bay so so this may be a carryover from the film noir time period but the reason this happened so frequently in film noir was the is because of world war ii 
because when young men were drafted into the war, a lot of them went off and fight. It was the older men that were too old to go and join the army that remained in society. And so society had a lot of older gentlemen and a lot of women looking to get married. The only available men were these older gentlemen, uh, bachelors or what have you. And so these relationships were true to life for that time period. And a lot of times uh, in film noir, you have the the older man uh, being mentally depressed or very um, shell-shocked. And that was true to life as well, because if those men did go and fight, the ones who came back were always mentally scarred from what we now know to be PTSD. Uh, and so they're troubled men without any mental health professionals able to deal with this. Uh, and I feel like this film with a mentally depressed person, uh, someone who has experienced a lot of trauma, falling in love with a beautiful young girl who doesn't know much about the world and is pretty naive. <laughs> it fits very much into that time period even though it's maybe a little bit later than some of the other films that did this. But yeah, it's just another layer of the creepiness of her relationship with this old man. <laughs> now, having said that, it's not one of his... I mean, he has been he has been looked older in some movies, but he was definitely, I mean, in his 40s, I would think, at this point. But even in the mid-40s, marrying a mid-20s. Yeah, it's... It's, it's quite an age gap. If we're going to close with that, I do want to get to uh, one of my favorite shots in the film and something Hitchcock does talk about in that interview book. It was um, Scotty. I think it happens multiple times. One that you are sure to remember is the one where he's looking down the bell tower, where it's it's the sense of vertigo that he gets. Like that, that weird yeah. shot. Exactly. Like, yep. To describe it to our listeners, Mark just put all of his fingertips together and then pulled them apart, which is, yes, very that, much so. It's exactly what it looks like. That camera angle. It happens earlier in the film when he first experiences vertigo, when the cop is falling. It's a trick of, I used to know what it was called, focal length of the camera. So that, so that, I think it's the focal length, so that when you kind of, when you change it, so it goes from, like, looking flatter to suddenly looks, it's like you would see in, like, oh. cartoons or, or other horror movies where you look down a hallway and suddenly the hallway stretches out in front of you, but this is him looking down a staircase and imagining it being a lot taller than it is, or okay, possibly it is that tall, but... Focal length may be correct, but the way that he described it was... Instead of changing something on a static camera, it is two operations. One, the camera is being pulled back, and at the same time, the camera is zooming in. And so you're getting more in the shot, but how close the floor is remains the same, because the camera is zooming in at the same rate it's being pulled back. Yeah, the, the effect is the same. Is this so he had uh, Hitchcock loved this shot because he had wanted to do this exact shot for an or an earlier film in his career. I think Rebecca, but it never quite worked for the story. And so when presented with this film, he finally got to shoot it, and like it's one of his one of his highlights of doing this film. Uh, though trivia question for you: the original way that they planned to do this was uh, to just film it in the staircase that they are climbing in the scene. But the people, the tech guys behind the scenes told him, 
Well, that's going to cost around $50,000 because we need to hire a crane and then we need to uh, suspend the camera on that crane and get a lot of um, support there so the camera doesn't twist or turn as we are making this thing happen. Um, And so just getting all that together, about $50,000. And Hitchcock went, well, we don't need any people in these shots, so why don't we shoot it in miniature? And that is what they ended up doing, where they built a smaller scale size of the staircase and they laid it on its side. And so the camera is on the ground being pulled backward when they are zooming in. So the question for you, if full scale, it costs $50,000, how much do you think the miniature costs? Now, that's interesting because they still have to build the miniature and there has to be a track for the camera to roll on unless they're just moving it manually. I will say 5000 Well, $15,000. Oh. <laughs> so, like, while it is, like, this is what amazes me with just the production of film. It's just how, how much things cost. Right. Because, uh, like... It is certainly a cost reduction to have have to pay $15,000 as opposed to $50,000, but I can't imagine spending $15,000 on anything, especially a single shot in a film that lasts five seconds at most. Yeah, and well, to me, it's like how much, so when, when you say $15,000, are you right. factoring in like cost of the film, cost to rent a camera, or maybe if it was a camera that they already owned or whatever it's probably the studio's camera or the dolly or the track whatever for it to go on and then you have to build the whole thing so all those materials but even that i don't know it doesn't seem like it should be that much but i unless you're also factoring in like pay for the cameraman and the crew to run the thing and the people who built the set and all that but yeah i mean maybe they are in that like filming any one shot you have to account for all the cost of that day of production. And maybe that is what they're factoring in, is not only the cost it makes to set everything up, but the cost of everyone on set that day, the cost of actually filming the thing, maybe. But it is just so yeah, much money. Stuff is always it's more so much money. Than I would think. Yeah. Anywho. Especially if this was in 1958. Uh-huh. Yeah. I I don't have a calculator for that, but whatever today's money that is. Uh, And I guess the only other note I have before we get to the final, final scene of this film is just, I really, I took note of all the things that were of a bygone era that are in this film and certainly representative of the time, but just things that have changed since now, since now, (laughs) since then till now. Sure. But yeah, just all of these weird anachronisms that just like, it seems so normal in that time where like, he's on a, he's on a telephone, but it's the era where like, you can click the telephone a bunch of times and that might improve your connection instead of disabling the call. Like when he's like, uh, like the guy didn't answer for a while. So he clicked the button and, and are you there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How would they be there if you're hanging up with them? <laughs> is what I thought. Uh, this was an era where any problem you have a cough or whatever, the cure is alcohol. Uh, Cause when she gets out of the bay, she's like, here, have some whiskey. This will fix your write-up. Uh, there is... Oh, one of the things I noticed is we see a Kansas City or Kansas State license plate for Judy. Uh, 
the license plate doesn't have a picture on it. It has a thumbprint, and that is how you identified people. I want to say you said license plate. And I'm Sorry, thinking... I meant driver's <laughs> license. <laughs> I was like, you know you how fingerprint on your license plate? <laughs> no, no, no. I have my face on a license plate. Mark. Yeah, that's that, that that's too. modern times. Yeah, I misspeak a lot, but you might have said driver's license, but I heard. I license probably plate. did it. I'll say driver's license now, and then never fix it. <laughs> uh, also, early on in the scene, like when they're chasing the guy in the rooftops, the cops are just shooting at him. There is no implication that the guy that is being chased has a weapon. So it is very much the cops shooting first. And I don't even know who, what, they never resolved that because the guy gets away when the cop comes back to save Jimmy. And of course, we don't even know what the guy did because nope. it just starts already in the chase. So. Right. So maybe he's killed some people. Maybe he shot at the police already. But as far from it, as far from an audience perspective, the cops are shooting first and that's totally fine. It's an exciting police chase. Yeah, just a little bit more. Uh, so when he is in trial uh, for the murder and like giving his testimony and whatnot with the judge who is already biased against him, there's only seven men in that jury. And I feel like the trial was taking place at the little Spanish village place where the murder yeah, happened. Yeah, I felt that way too. That may have just been like they couldn't afford a courtroom and just decided to film it wherever they already had space. I mean, I have watched some shows, which doesn't necessarily mean that's the way that real court happens, but there are times where they will go visit the scene to give the jury, like, a visual of what the area is or whatever, but it seems weird that you would have the entire trial there. And then at the end, it's like, okay, now you can talk amongst yourselves, you can go away if you want to, <laughs> or just decide now. And so they just kind of huddle up and whisper and then decide that he's not guilty. Yeah, it just seems so weird to me. Like, we're, I, I had assumed that juries were always specified to be 12 of your peers. I, were juries a variable size back then? I have no idea. Although, I mean, there are some times where the judge makes a decision without a jury. So. That is true. Though I feel like those aren't capital crimes. Like, I feel like those are for minor things that, like, the severity or, like, the punishment for them has already been predetermined, and you don't need to have... Now, you mentioned capital crime, but I don't... So, I guess what's curious to me is what he's on... If he was on trial, because... I don't feel like he's on trial, He wasn't... But... I mean, they know that he wasn't responsible for it, kind of. Well, well, do they? Like, obviously... Well, he was on the staircase. Yeah. But... Maybe the, um, but nobody, nobody else in the church was there. They saw a woman fall and then this man coming down from the staircase. But they didn't see him because while they That's were checking out the roof, he came out the other side. So and they, that may have been why he's on trial for the murder then because he didn't stay to talk to the police. He escaped. Okay. So then my next question is the people who are responsible it's explained away, oh, you stayed up here in the tower until it all blew over, and then you then you got away when people weren't looking. So, if someone jumps from a tower and dies, would you not go inspect the crime scene and maybe go up the tower to see? Maybe. The first thing would be ensuring, like, seeing if the person was still alive to any yeah. capacity and making sure they were okay or not. And I realize we've not explained to people who haven't seen this movie what the actual crime was. 
So I'm going to do that here. <laughs> um, we see this in flashback, but when Judy, dressed as Madeline, runs up that staircase of the bell tower, and Scotty's in pursuit but can't go all the way up because he's got fear of fights, he stops halfway through, and in a flashback, we see her get to the bell tower where the guy that hired Scotty has the real Madeline, and she's been... I think she's already dead at this point. I yeah, think he had poisoned it, it, her or something. They, they explained later that he had already broken her neck before yes. this. Yes, and so she has a broken neck, and so he's holding her dead body, and he throws her from the bell tower. And so Scotty believes the Madeline he was chasing, who's actually Judy, fell, but Judy didn't fall. The real Madeline fell, and this whole thing was a setup so that the guy that hired Scotty could kill his wife and get away with it. Like, it is such a complicated plan that works out for him because he never sees justice yeah because that's what at the court scene that guy even comes up to him afterwards and says well i'm sorry you had to go through whatever uh, i'm it's it's just glad that it's all over now and i guess i'm just gonna take off for a while because i can't stand to live here anymore or something and he just goes away uh so the the final anachronism that I have on my list was my favorite one because it elicited like an actual guffaw from me <laughs> when I was watching this film, and it's not intended to be funny in the slightest. So this is in the scene when <laughs> those are um, the things you always laugh at. Carl. Oh, I love them. <laughs> so during his investigation, Scotty is working with Midge. He needs some history on the area. Midge takes him to a bookseller who is old and has some information. Uh, he gives the history of Carlotta about why she committed suicide. And it's that she married a man. And then that man had a baby with her and then decided he didn't want Carlotta anymore. And so he sent Carlotta away, keeping the child for himself. And I think this is... That child was one of Madeline's ancestors, and that's the direct line. But being cut off from her family and her child, and cut off from the the money that that man was giving her, Carlotta was poor and destitute and lost, and so committed suicide that well, uh, that way. Um, but the thing that made me laugh is while the old man is telling the story and saying that the man sent Carlotta away and kept the baby. He says wistfully him to himself, yeah, men could do that back then. It's just like, <laughs> he is so wistful for an era where men had this power over women and women had just no way to do anything about it. Um, well, I will say that I do not even remember that happening. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't something that stood out to me, so it's great. It was just the way that he said it. She's like, oh, gosh, men could do that back then. It's just, mmm, that's not great. <laughs> anyway, let's get to the final thing of this movie where Scotty has dressed Judy as Madeline. She puts on a necklace that she kept for now this reasons. Is after, so he dressed her up in the gray suit and made her do her hair and all that, and then the green fog. Yeah, yeah. And then I don't know if it, it must. I don't know if it was the same day. It doesn't really specify. Right. If it I was think the it's. Time I think it's passed. a bit later. Because then they're they're going out on a date together or something, and she wears the black dress, which I think is also one that he specifically bought because it reminded him of Madeline. But then she puts on this necklace that was also in the Carlotta painting, which he had seen her wearing when they were at the museum looking at the painting. And the guy that hired him had said that like. 
This jewelry had been passed down. This is something that Madeline owned, the real Madeline. And it's something that Judy wore when she was pretending to be Madeline, I think. And it's a very iconic piece of jewelry. Like, it is a clear giveaway to Scotty that something is up and that he starts piecing things together. So, like, as Judy, why would you keep this? So this is what I was thinking is... Again, I thought he already knew, Mm. and so, and now they were both in love again because he finally got her to fall back in love with him, and so she was just like, well, I'll just wear this necklace because I know that he liked it and it reminds him of Madeline times, and so... I thought that he was already aware of things going on, and she was just dressing up the way he wanted her to. Because up until this point, he's been trying to make her look like Madeline the whole time. Why would it upset him that she looks more like her again? I see. Yeah, you were on a you were on a different page than this movie the entire time, huh? Well, that explains why I loved it so much. <laughs> and so, his plan... I suppose his plan now is to make her confess the truth to him. But he presents it as, well, the final thing I need to do to get over my trauma is to recreate my trauma. I think he was repeating back a line that she had said to him before she ran up the tower. She said there were, I think she said something about, well, there's one final thing I have to do or Ah, something. And, And I think that was during the whole speech about if I ever went away, just know that I loved you. Right, exactly. Okay, that makes sense. And so he forces her up the bell tower and has some somehow overcome his vertigo. So on on the way there, she noticed where they were going because they had taken the same road to get there before. So she's recognizing landscapes and is like, where are we going? Why are we going here? And of course, because this film is this film, we see every second of the journey of them driving to this final location. Um, but the, yeah, so they go up the bell tower and they get to the point and he says, oh, this is where I had to stop before because I couldn't go on. And then he just keeps yelling at her on, and suddenly they're at the top, even though I don't really think they climbed any stairs throughout any of that. <laughs> it's just like, I think there's like another shorter staircase out the trap door to the roof. Yeah, I think But that right. was, I don't think he actually, they actually got any higher throughout that whole thing until right as they climbed up the staircase at the end. Yeah, so, like, they get up there, and she confesses everything, which is not useful to us as an audience, because we already know everything. Mm -hmm. Like, the only thing we learn here is that she got paid, and the necklace was a part of the payment. And we learned that the wife was already dead, I guess. Yes. But but that doesn't really matter at that point. But we already know that her involvement in it, and I feel like because Hitchcock changed things to have the reveal to the audience much earlier, this second reveal is way less impactful. See, that's and that's what I was saying earlier. It's kind of like you reveal the big twist right in the middle of the movie and then there's still half an hour, 40 minutes left. And it's like, well, what's the point of watching the rest of it? Because you already know what the big, you already know the end plot point. So uh, I guess you get to see him overcome his vertigo. Maybe that's so that the title makes sense. Yeah, that's possible. (laughs) Yeah, and then... I don't love the ending to this film, because they're up there, everything gets revealed, and then, out of nowhere, up another person comes out of the trap door, and Judy gets scared, and then falls to her death. Like, I get that it is supposed to be, like, 
oh, history repeating itself. And now it's a tragedy, but now it's the woman he thought had fallen before is now actually falling mm-hmm. to her death. And there's a closure to that. But, like, they don't give a good justification as to why she falls. Like, it's just, that's, she gets scared and loses her balance, and then she's dead. Yeah, and it wasn't even, li- like, it wasn't like somebody jumped up and startled them. It was, like, a person slowly walking up the stairs, mm-hmm. for, and then suddenly, after the person speaks, it's like, oh, and then falls off. It's like... Yeah, in my synopsis, I called it a nun surprise, which is exactly what it is, because <laughs> it just happens to be a nun who was there at the Abbey with them. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't... Like... The only thing I can think of is that Judy thought it was the the guy that hired them in the bell tower. Like, she had just revealed the truth, and now here he is to take her and yeah, kill her. Yeah, because like, she was kind of in the shadows, but you could obviously see that it's a nun there, so I don't know. The only other thing I, is if maybe the nun overheard the conversation, and now she's like, oh no, she knows the secret, and just got scared about that. But I don't know why that would matter, because Scotty already knows it. Now, the thing for me at this point is, he's fallen in love with the same girl twice, and now he finds out she's part of this evil plot to begin with. Right. Does he Is he still in love with her, and is it a tragedy that she dies, or is he, like, ready to arrest her and send her away, and is just kind of like, well, now the case is over? I think he would still be upset because he still loves her, but at the same time, it's kind of like she broke his heart because she finds out, or he finds out that she was part of it in the first place. So I don't know if he would, if she didn't die, would they have stayed together? I think they would have, and I do think that this, he has a lot of mental problems, one of which was the grief in losing the woman that he loved. And so he went through, once finding the necklace, he went through this process of verifying his suspicion and making this woman admit to him that she was the same woman all along. I think he would have been very upset with her. Like, he was yelling at her the entire time going up that bell tower. But I think that would have allowed him to get past that loss now, where he understands this woman is the person I fell in love with. I don't have to try to keep recreating the woman I fell in love with. She's here. She can just be her own person now. Even though he knows that she tricked him the first time. Right. So he kept trying to use this new person to recreate a lost love. But now he understands the love wasn't lost. She was there the whole time. I think he would he would be able to continue that relationship and not force her to be Madeline, not force her to be any other way than what she is, because she's already the woman he loves. Does that make any sense? So he doesn't yeah, need well, to recreate Madeline Well, it does, but he, but he was in love with her as Madeline, and as we established, she was acting that whole time. So perhaps he's not in love with her. <laughs> sure, but what did he fall in love with? Did he fall in love with the accent? Did he fall in love with uh, the way that she dressed or the way that she uh, did her hair? Or was it the woman behind all of those things? Because it's the same woman expressing thoughts and ideas just in a slightly different format. I don't know. I think they could have made it work. I think when I saw this a long time ago, I was like, oh, now it's sad because, you know, this woman that he's fell in love with and now he's lost her again twice. 
So he would be sad about that. But watching it now, he's just so angry and yelling at her right up until that point. I don't know if he was still had feelings for her or if he was just upset and had that he had been betrayed and doesn't. Using the medical science that this film presents, I think <laughs> this will cure his depression, having done the same trauma over again. Well, it cured his vertigo. That's true. After this happens, like the closing shot is him walking through the window and looking down over the ledge down at her body. That's true. So I think that, again, that's kind of the point is now he's cured. Well, maybe he isn't. I mean, the film cuts away. Perhaps looking down, he gets very faint and then falls off himself. Yeah, the happy ending. The couple lives together forever. <laughs> it's a real Romeo and Juliet, even though uh, it's nothing like Romeo and Juliet. All right. Well, that is all of my notes. I assume we got through everything you had as well. If I had any notes, we would be through. <laughs> oh, yeah. I might bring this up during games. But also, now that we're done with the film, the last thing I had on the interview thing was, by Hitchcock terms, this film was a flop. This film did not do very well. Like, compared to uh, Psycho or North by Northwest or Rear Window, like, this film did not do great for it. And so that's the interview series that he did with Francois Truffaut. A lot of the times, he doesn't have a final thought on any one project. They just go to the next project that he worked on. And just, like, it's not one of the favorites that he's ever done. This is just kind of, he attempted some things, but it didn't work out really well it's not an audience favorite and then they just move on and so i feel that way too in reference to the other hitchcock films i know this is not one of his best and it's one of like the classics that you hear about which is interesting but i i think the part that throws me off the most is how it has those two separate halves to it and to me i would rather just have a and i guess it is a continuous story i don't know it's just weird Like, because you have the one climax ending, and then suddenly it starts over really slow again, and then it builds up to another thing, but... And then because the twist is revealed right in the middle, it's like, well, why am I going to watch the rest of it then? Because I already know what the point of it is. So I I don't know. There were just a few things to it that were... The movie... I think now the acting overall was well done. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It it was well... Like, everything about it was well done. It's just the story, maybe? Actually, I didn't find Jimmy Stewart's acting incredibly compelling i mean he is very much just jimmy stewart in this role we're supposed to like kim novak is doing a great job of the two different roles she's given uh the woman who's playing midge even though i don't understand her character she seems to be doing a fine job but like in comparison to kim novak who is doing a great job jimmy stewart doesn't seem to be trying all that hard does he really need to well, not at this point. I mean, point he's Jimmy career. Stewart. He just gets parts anyway. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. But this does seem like him phoning it in as opposed to trying his best at doing a role. In between the two, I definitely like the female roles in this film more than Jimmy Stewart's roles, is what I'm saying. Anyway, uh, why don't we talk about that restaurant scene? Go ahead. No, I was, was going to move on. No, no, no. I, I, we can move on. I was just, we just never talked about the random velvety wallpapers in there. And it was a very interesting restaurant. Do you not remember this? I don't. I did not take note of this restaurant. He was in there like three times. Well, yes, I remember the restaurant. I don't remember it being remarkable, I guess. Oh, it was a fancy place, I think. It was supposed to be fancy, but yeah, it was like, 
it was like dark woods and the walls were all like a dark red velvet kind of thing. It was maybe that was a thing back then, but it was weird. I don't know. I'm, tr- I'm sure I could find places in Chicago that look a little bit like that. Maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Anywho, let's go on to games. Our first game is the pitch game, a game in which we shove together two or more properties in the form It's This Meets This to describe this film in terms of other things. So I'm going to start us off here telling our audience what Vertigo is in terms of other properties. So, Mark, since you will be guessing, I will tell you, all three of my pairings today, one of them is another Hitchcock property. So, two of them have been mentioned in our recording. The third one, (laughs) maybe you don't know, we'll see. But starting us off here... It makes me nervous that you're going to steal all of mine. Oh, I might. We'll find out. All right, so... First one here, a Hitchcock film starring Jimmy Stewart where he is recovering from an injury and only partially witnesses a wife's murder spending the rest of the film trying to figure out what really happened, meets a film where characters are jumping rooftop to rooftop, someone is saved from drowning, and a character drastically changes the way they dress in order to pursue a love interest. Uh, okay, so the first one is Rear Window. Correct. Now, the second one, I have a movie in my head, but I am losing it at love interest because I'm not sure that that's actually fitting for it. I want to say Mary Poppins. Ooh, no. (laughs) Ooh, Ooh. no. So that Um, that definitely has the rooftops. Did somebody drown in that film or almost drown? Not really. I think during one of the, they jump into the painting and I think a guy uh, gets okay. thrown into a river or something, but not really in uh, danger. I, I'm of trying to think of a hint that doesn't give it away directly. Um, it's a man who's drowning uh, and he is saved because of magic. Uh, not magic he has, but magic somebody else uses for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aladdin? It is Aladdin! Oh, I, okay, so I had to think about rooftops on that one. I was really picturing modern rooftops. Sure, but <laughs> no, you gotta picture the making up rooftops of Agrabah. <laughs> um, so yes, that was Rear Window meets Aladdin. Let's yes. go ahead with your first one there, Mark. All right, uh, because it's, uh, let's see, a little bit. It's a movie where a... Man develops a phobia after a traumatic experience, which he struggles to overcome in order to save those he loves. And uh, a movie in the thriller genre that utilizes the idea of lookalikes and assumed identities for the baddie to further their own cause. Hmm. Is the second one Anastasia? (laughs) No. Okay. That would have been a better idea, but (laughs) no. (laughs) Is it the parent trap, even though there's no baddies in that film? I'll ask you, is there, is it a movie we've done for the podcast? No. Okay, because I was going to go next with It Takes Two. (laughs) I'm trying to think, um, phobia movies for the first one. Is it arachnophobia? Hooray! Okay. 
I put I thought that having the word phobia in it would be too much of a hint, but I got there. Uh, and then the second one is about lookalikes and baddies taking advantage of that to pursue their goals. Yes. Is it a movie you've know I've seen? No. Okay. I know I've seen it. <laughs> All right, give me give me a hint about it. Donald Sutherland. Whoa. Um, I know. I'm trying to picture him in roles. Are we talking old Donald Sutherland? No. Well, what do you mean by old? <laughs> like old him as an old person or old like older movies? Oh, interesting. Um, I was thinking him as an older person. Then no. Okay. Is this Clute? <laughs> no. Um, um, also Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> yeah, I am, I am blanking yes. on this. Oh, yeah, no. I finally found f- one that you don't know. I probably know it, I just can't pull it. It's not The Fly, is it? No. Alright, what is it? Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Ah, uh, okay. I've seen that only once. Uh, so yeah, that was a good call, because I, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. I, mean, I guess you have seen it, though. Just, just the once. <laughs> and, like, I know it as a reference. And I guess, technically, they don't use look do or do I don't it's, remember. It's like they carbon. have like those pod things that grow. So I think they are lookalikes. They're not the actual people that they I think. Invade. I think you're right. The pods grow the the clones. Yeah, and the originals are destroyed. All right, so that was um... <laughs> arachnophobia meets invasion of the body snatcher. There we go. All right, so my next one. Uh, so in addition to having. So to give you hints before we even start, uh, in addition to one of these being a Hitchcock, both of these are older films. So keep that in mind. And here we go. So a since this is a film that's an adaptation of a novel with a San Francisco man hired as a police detective, people dying in front of him during the case, and a woman he's investigating going by multiple names... And also, the detective solves the case after finding an ornate, bejeweled object. Meets an Alfred Hitchcock film featuring the cover-up of a dead wife and a woman in a relationship with a man constantly reminded of his previous lover. Sorry, that should read, a woman in a relationship with a man who is constantly reminded of his previous lover. The woman (laughs) is reminded, not the man. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, is the first one the Maltese Falcon? It is, even mm. though I I switched it, and I need to make an update to my games here, because I wrote it wrong, but yes, Maltese Falcon is correct. <laughs> I got the right answer from the wrong clue, yay! No, no, the clue is correct, the answer I had was incorrect, because uh, I was going to say, so, no, this is the big sleep, but it's not. The second one is a Hitchcock movie where a woman and a man are in love, but the woman is reminded of an old lover? Correct. So there's a cover-up of a dead wife, and a woman who starts a relationship with a man is in constant reminder of his previous lover. Of his previous lover. Yes. So the woman is reminded, and it's the man's previous lover. Um, is this not the one about the train, is it? No. I don't uh, probably know enough of his movies because it's not any of the ones that I'm thinking of. Okay. Well, 
perhaps to jog your memory or give a hint to our audience, does the name De Winter mean anything to you? <laughs> nope. <laughs> the, the second Mrs. De Winter? <laughs> All right. Nope. If, if that didn't give away, you may not know it. Uh, so, yes, this was The Maltese Falcon meets Rebecca. Nope. Yeah, so Rebecca is a film of a woman meeting a man falling in love and going to live with him in his rich estate, but being constantly reminded of his first wife by, like, the servants and whatnot. It's like, well, you'll never be good as the first Mrs. De Winter. I don't think I've ever even heard of that one. Mm. Is that one of his better-known movies? Well, uh, I know it as a... I've seen it referenced in a lot of things. I think it is based off of a novel that is very popular in Britain. And I know Alfred Hitchcock started his career in England and then moved to America to do a lot of films. So it is possible it is more well-known over there than it is here. Anywho, Interesting. go ahead. What's your next So one? that means all of our listeners will have heard of <laughs> Hey, we have upwards of one listener in England, sometimes. <laughs> um, okay, so my uh, the, for the next one, a clue is that they are not both old movies. Cool. <laughs> uh, an Alfred Hitchcock vehicle starring Jimmy Stewart, in which Stewart's character dangles from a ledge high above the ground, falls in love with a blonde, and must overcome a disability to solve a crime. Okay. Meets... A movie with characters pretending to be someone they're not, upscale snooty restaurants, a visit to a museum, looking down to the ground from a tall tower, <laughs> a character <laughs> saved from intentional drowning, and a loved one falling from a building to crash on the ground below. Cool, cool, cool. I, <laughs> I love the parallels. I would not have thought of the second one. Uh, so I imagine this is Rear Window meets Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Correct. That's a great parallel. Uh, All right. Uh, my final one here. Uh, so this is a Hitchcock film I had not heard of. Uh, so we'll see if you can get it. Don't. It's it's the first one. So if you can't get the first one, don't worry about it. Focus on the second. So here we go. So since this is a Hitchcock film centering around one character pursuing another to try to get more information out of them, ultimately leading to two characters atop a tall structure and one falling to their death despite the desires of the other, meets a psychological thriller film featuring a spouse acting strangely because they are actually someone else, two on-screen women's deaths and a third woman trying to leave, and... A murder planned so well that the authorities are none the wiser. I don't think that I will know either of them. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you'll know the second one, though I did only focus on the similarities between this and Vertigo. Um, so let me see. Okay, I'll say the third woman who decides to leave. Um, the parallel with Midge uh, that I'm making from this film is played by Scarlett Johansson. Hmm. But there are female deaths on screen. Correct. Two other women die in this film. Now I'm trying to think which one this is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was this was in Endgame? No. Infinity War. <laughs> also incorrect. But yes. Uh, well, Scarlett Johansson. Well, I guess she does decide to leave. Um, and there are a couple of ladies who die. That, in that is fair. Movie. That is fair. All right. So the other clue there is a a spouse is acting strangely because they are actually someone else. 
Are you sure I've seen that one? I'm pretty sure. I'm trying to think of another clue I can give you that won't give it directly away. I would say the spouse acting strangely only acts strangely sometimes, uh, in that sometimes they're the real person, sometimes they're someone who looks like that person trying to be the spouse. Um, the f- one of the big things I cut out is it centers around magic, but not f- but not real magic. Stage magic. That may be one that I have not seen. Really? I would have thought you had seen this. <laughs> well, tell me what it sure, is. Sure. Because... So, the, the two I have here. The first one was Saboteur meets The Prestige. Nope. You haven't seen The Prestige. It's very good. I have not. I Well, I and I was almost going to say Greatest Showman, but then I'm like, I don't think that Scarlet is in that one, and I don't know if anyone dies, and I've never seen it. It's also not necessarily magic. <laughs> he is a stage performer, but he doesn't do magic in The the Greatest Showman. Yeah, well, see, the, the, this is why, well, but I haven't seen them, so it doesn't matter. Let's get okay. to your last one. Here we go. Last one. A thriller where a woman is thought to be dead, causing mental anguish for the hero. Later, the woman is found to be alive. The hero falls in love with her again, but eventually discovers she has been deceiving him all along. In the end, she winds up dying trying to help the hero. Meets a Hitchcock thriller starring Jimmy Stewart, where a murderer is covered up in plain sight. Okay. I don't know if Jimmy Stewart's in the one I'm thinking of, but the Hitchcock... Movie that I know where murder is covered up in plain sight would be Rope. Correct. Okay. Because he's the guy... Oh, is he the teacher in that? The professor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then where a woman is thought to be dead, and then she's alive, and she falls in love, and she helps, and then she actually dies. Um, <laughs> well, since since you mentioned it, is this Endgame? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I you said Scarlett Johansson and the Avengers were the first thing I thought of, and then I was like oh but two, there there are women dying in that one so I mean I want to say that is one of her most famous roles nowadays yeah anywho uh, give me a hint I don't know this offhand uh John Voight is in it John Voight is that mm, I'm gonna have to look up who that is I don't I know the name I can't place it with a face offhand Emilio Estevez is in it wait is this Nobody's wait. <laughs> Nobody dies in the Mighty Ducks, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I don't think John Voight is in the Mighty Ducks, is he? I don't know. For whatever reason, I'm picturing him as like one of the evil coaches. But you're probably now I right. have to make sure that John Voight is actually John Voight. <laughs> yeah, Angelina Jolie's dad. Yeah, yeah, he's the right one okay. that I was thinking of. Yeah, I mean, I'm confusing him with uh, the bad coach in the original Mighty Ducks just because the bad coach isn't that famous of an actor. He's not. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank here. What is it? Okay, well, I was avoiding this. Tom Cruise. <laughs> Tom Cruise? Emilio Estevez? Huh, I don't don't know if I've seen this film, tell you the truth. Uh, at the end, the big chase thing happens on a train, and the bad guy ends up dying underneath the helicopter explosion. Vanilla Sky. Uh, the Edge of Tomorrow. I don't know. Is this one mission of Mission Impossible. All right, it's just, <laughs> it's just the first Mission Impossible. Yes. All right. It's been a while. I have seen it, but it has been a long time. I don't remember Emilio Estevez being in that. He was one of the, I think he's the, in the elevator at the beginning. He's like one of the first people that gets killed. Huh. All right. You could be, you could be right. 
I could be. So that was Mission Impossible meets Mission Rope. Impossible meets Rope. Let's go on to our second game called Alternate Taglines, <laughs> a phrase you would see in the movie poster for the film, which accurately encapsulates the theme of the film, but possibly misses the point. All right, so I'm again going to start here. Um, yeah, so this is more for the second act of the film, but uh, it is Vertigo. Will you love me if I change everything? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually had something very similar to that originally. Actually, as not as a tagline, as a TP guide thing. But um, I got rid of it because I didn't like the way it sounded. But I have a different one that's very similar. So. I, I, I toyed with one. I was just like, when will you love me? <laughs> so for mine, Vertigo. A love story that hardly focuses on the theme of its title. <laughs> uh, Alright, I thought there was a pun coming with hardly focusing. No. But, alright. But that would have worked too. Uh-huh. Alright, I like it. It's a nice subtle pun. It was an unintentional one. That, not that you know of. <laughs> My second one here is Vertigo. The perfect murder, the worst private eye. I don't know, what about Magoo? Uh, was he a private eye? I don't know. But he also solved the case. Like, Magoo no, was bad, but, like, he always thwarted the villain by accident. Okay, fine. Carl wins again. The villain gets away in this, Mark. That's true. Actually, two villains get away in this one. All right. Uh, my next one is Vertigo. Alfred Hitchcock's new thriller takes suspense to new heights. Ah! You knew it was coming. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and we said off-air that one of the ones you're going to read is an actual tagline that is on par with that. Yeah. Which I guess to be, Vertigo, don't look down on this film. That actually was not, an, that was not a real tagline. But No, no, that's the one I made up thinking that it was on par with that oh, no, punny yeah. one. No, there, I, my, you have three, right? I'll do the real one last. Cool. Alright, this, my final one, is a thought that I had so often in this film, because what's going on behind the scenes is so convoluted, and it is simply, Vertigo, there's gotta be an easier way to kill your wife. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to say that to a cop, I guess. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, uh, there are actually six taglines that I found from the movie. One of them that you might argue with a Hitchcock thriller. You should see it from the beginning. And another one was the romantic suspense of to catch a thief. Hold on. So wait, before you get to the real one, one of the real ones is you should see it from the beginning. Yep. How else would you see this? I, I don't know. <laughs> would you start in the second act? I'm, I, I mean, you could, cause it basically has its own, its own story. That is true. All right. Uh, so go ahead. Let me see. There's a lot of them just alluding to the fact that Hitchcock directed it and pointing to his older movies. <laughs> so then there's this one, <clears throat> a tall story about a pushover. Uh, <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> and it's not even one that I made up. So. Yeah. Plus tall story isn't a real thing. Yeah. Like tall, tall tales are, but this story doesn't really fit in that genre. I don't know. Yeah. I think I think some of ours are better. <laughs> you probably think yours are better. I always do. All right, let's go on to our third game, which is the TV Guide game. A description of the plot of the film you would see in a Netflix or TV Guide description, which 
accurately describe the plot, but perhaps missed the point. All right. So I am continuing trying to do uh, ones that are shorter and more to the point. And I think I've done pretty well here. Uh, so my first one, Vertigo, is a man's journey to faces acrophobia leads to the end of a long friendship and two women dead. I mean, that that's just accurate. I know. <laughs> I don't even know how it misses the point. but <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't. I just, I'm pointing out, like, that's a, yeah. that's a weird mental health journey to go on. It's true. All right, my second one is oh, better, wait, which uh, is why I saved I, it. Oh, oh, I was I thought you were going on to your second no, one no, already. No. I'm like, whoa. Please go ahead to your first one. It's okay, I don't like, uh, well, my second one will be better too, but it's also longer, so. A professional stalker accidentally falls in love with the same woman twice. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um... So yeah, uh, my second one here, which is only slightly better. Two women go to extreme lengths to have a relationship with a man, and he continually proves himself to be unlovable. <laughs> I'm assuming one of the two is Midge, and not that the same woman is two women. Yeah, one of them is Midge, and the other <laughs> is Judy. I don't feel like Madeline works that hard to have a relationship with yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of put there in front of her, I guess. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I know. <laughs> it's very exciting. Mark, what is your last one My here? last one. A retired cop has been single his whole life, but knows exactly what he wants in a woman. As he forces his latest fling to change herself to look like his lost true love, she eventually truly becomes the woman he wants. In the end, she falls for him, too. Oh, boy. All right, that was a long way to go to get to that pun at the end. I had, well, yeah, I actually had two separate ones and mixed them together. <laughs> so Yeah, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. All right, well, pretty good across the board. Anywho, let's go on to our review scale, uh, starting, of course, with our infamous potato scale, telling our audience what they can expect to feel uh, in terms of our relationship with potatoes. Uh, so, while I look up the scale, as I often do, Mark, go ahead and start us off. What is Vertigo in terms of potatoes? So, uh, before I say mine... Oh, you've got Sarah's. I have Sarah's, which I think we neglected to mention at all through this whole time. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, if you haven't noticed yet, listeners, Sarah has not been on this episode. <laughs> yeah, she's not just been sitting silently in the background. If you know anything about Sarah, that would be literally <laughs> impossible for her to do. <laughs> so true. Um, she did mention a potato and number scale for this. I don't, did she ever give a reason for what it was? No. Well, no. okay. So apparently this movie, according to Sarah, is ribbon potatoes for no reason at all. <laughs> yeah, when we asked her, asked her about it, she said because it kind of sounds Hitchcockian to her. <laughs> so I think she's relating like ribbon potatoes to like rope, maybe, like murders. being tied up in some way. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I, yeah. Um, so ribbon potatoes, apparently. Now, I, so we mentioned a lot of times that it was really slow. Um, and I, do we have, I guess we don't have anything specifically for that, but I am definitely going towards the oven baked potatoes, which for us says takes too long to get started because 
I mean, you have the chase scene at the beginning, but then there's a lot of stuff going on after that that's just kind of nothing. <laughs> and and then you have, like, the big thing where they go up the tower and he chases her up there and she falls, so there's kind of this big moment, and then all of a sudden there's nothing again. Uh, we also have raw potatoes, which is bland, and I, I don't know, because, you know, this is supposed to be a suspense thriller kind of movie and it is a classic that people talk about but for me there just wasn't a lot there for me to get into it which also leads me to potato skins which is not <laughs> enough there because it has its moments and ultimately disappointing so i feel like i'm mixing a lot of weird things because raw potatoes versus oven baked potatoes doesn't make sense because raw wouldn't be baked but you don't know that i would say Maybe raw oven baked potato skins how about that <laughs> All right. I am, I just added a column to the Google sheet. If you want to get in there, go ahead as I go in and say my potatoes here. So I am going to, I feel the same way. I was writing about my potatoes as you were describing and a lot of what you were saying accurately uh, described what I kind of feel about the film though. Uh, for me, I definitely agree with the oven baked potatoes where the second half of this film is where the interesting things happen. And I get that the first act of the film is really setting everything up. Like, we have to establish that he is falling in love with the woman he's pursuing. We have to establish the murder plot that's revealed in the second act. But I feel like this film could just be the second act. Because that's where everything exciting happens. That's where the suspense that Hitchcock is known for is actually present. And I feel like the first half also has those driving scenes which just take forever and are so boring to watch by today's standards. So, I definitely agree with oven baked potatoes. I feel like that first half was all preheating, and now in the second half, it's actually starting to cook, actually starting to go. Uh, the other one I had, well, the other two I have, are box potatoes. Just by Hitchcock standards, this should be better. Hitchcock <laughs> is a master filmmaker. He is someone who spends a lot of time on his films to get everything exactly perfect, to feel the, at least like the feeling of suspense, the feeling of fear are always prevalent in his films, and he works a lot to get those exactly the way he wants. The, like this film, by his standards, was a flop, and I feel like this film, by his standards, is not a great film. I don't think this film would get as uh, as well recognized if it wasn't a Hitchcock film. I don't think it stands alone without the director behind it. And because it's a Hitchcock film, I do expect more of it. It's the same reason I don't necessarily love Inside Out. Inside Out is a fine film, but it's I'm weighing against all other Pixar films. And in that category, it falls severely behind other titles. I think Vertigo has the same thing with other Hitchcock titles. Uh, so the third one I have here is Mr. Potato Head. The mechanics of this murder plot, you probably shouldn't <laughs> think too much about them. Cause yeah, there does have to be, there's gotta be an easier way to do this. And so much of this is convoluted and really creepy if you dig into all the things that would need to happen to make this go off. Like, I don't know how the drowning scene worked. 
in the context of it being fake, but also kind of real. So yeah, Mr. Potato Head we just have is, don't think too much about it. I forgot we even had that one. Yeah. So yes, all together, I have a boxed Mr. Potato Head being oven baked. <laughs> uh, what an image. I know. Uh, it's, a, it's the original packaging. Oh boy. Those in here, as we move on to our second review scale, which is a more traditional 0 to 10 scale, telling our listeners should they go back and watch this film, we also have Sarah's rating here. I, the reasoning that she gave, <laughs> at least in her text, we didn't get to talk to her about it, is it's a Hitchcock, but not one of her favorites. Sarah doesn't often prepare until the last minute, so I don't know if she went back and watched it. But she did give it a 9, so we have to take it on faith that this is her accurate review, having seen the film. She wants to put it in that league, even though I think both of us are going to rate it lower, so she gives it a 9. Mark, while I'm typing in my potatoes, please give us your numerical review scale. I think Sarah just knows the movies that we won't like, and so she purposely gives them high scores so they average out better. <laughs> so I... Um... You know, I, I'm I'm actually kind of glad that you were talking about how you didn't love it either, because Sarah sent her thing earlier with a nine, and I was thinking, oh boy, everybody's going to be mad at me because I didn't really like this movie. So, <laughs> I think, like you said, um, on its own, it wouldn't stand very well, but because it's Hitchcock, everybody has heard of it, and... It, it has that classic rating that everybody thinks they need to go watch it. And from that standpoint, it's a classic movie. I would not go out of your way to watch it over other Hitchcock movies, but it may still be worth watching just to see it if you have not seen it before. I actually have not gone back to look at my other ratings of things lately, but I think... I'm kind of in, I'm looking at other ratings that I gave other movies, and I don't want to put this higher than them, but I don't want it to be low either. So, I, I mean, it's not going to be a 9 for sure, but it's definitely not going to be as good as, I mean, I would put it probably behind Beetlejuice and Adam's Family, where I have those at a 6. So, uh, yeah, I think this is just going to be a solid 6. It's right in that same range. I'm kind of surprised that Beetlejuice is that low for me because I kind of like that movie, but <laughs> I I don't know. I I don't it's it's I think still higher than a middle of the road for me. I would still watch it again, but it's not going to be one of my favorites that I always want to come back to. Uh, if someone has not seen this movie, it is a Hitchcock, and it may be worth seeing it once to say that you have, and maybe you will like it more than we did, because Sarah did, so <laughs> so um, it'd be worth watching it. If you have seen it before and just want to watch it again, it might be worth it, or it may not. I guess that's up to you. You can listen to the podcast and determine for yourself. Well, Mark, if they're hearing that, they are already listening. Yep, so... <laughs> So, yeah, I would agree with you that this is above a middle-of-the-road film. Uh, and looking back on my past reviews, uh, which I do so frequently now, uh, the, the number that I had in my mind to give it would be a 7. And then I looked back at my 7s, and I've got things like The Emperor's New Groove and Beetlejuice there. And I think those... While they're not of the same, like, technical quality as Vertigo is, 
I would definitely want to see them more than this film. Uh, so I went a little bit lower than that. I've got Heart and Souls at a 6.7. And I feel like that is kind of on par. And I will get this film better than Heart and Souls just because it was made of a bygone era, a different time period where they do like to set a scene and they, people in this area, area, era, uh, didn't really do montages. They kind of showed everything instead of playing things over top of each other to establish like long periods of time, which if Alfred Hitchcock used a montage here, I think a lot of the the parts that were boring to me of the car chase scenes or like pursuing her around the city, we didn't need to see all of it. If he used the montage, it takes away all my problems with it. Where I'm going to land for this Hitchcock film is a 6.75. I feel like, at least with the rest of my reviews, that is consistent. I probably won't go back and see this, but Hitchcock is a master filmmaker. This is not one of his best works, but there are some really good things in it. So I'm giving credit to the tower shot that we talked about, where that I've not seen in any other movie. He's doing interesting and experimental things with camera shots, and it does work well in this film where someone is scared of heights. Uh, the tension of the second act, uh, where he is dressing Judy up as Madeline, we both found uncomfortable, and I think that's the intent of those scenes, is to make viewers very uncomfortable. And in that regard, it does great, but it doesn't have a great ending because the twist is already revealed at the start of the second act. Midge doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> she just doesn't make sense. <laughs> but overall, I feel like it is still pretty good because a master made this film. And like, as bad as this film could have been, I think he did the best he could with it. So I think 6.75... If you're interested in the history of film, maybe go back and watch this. If you're expecting to find a Hitchcock that is a buried treasure that you're really got to enjoy, there's other better titles for you to do that. Uh, so that is going to close up our review scales. This is normally where Sarah would tell you where you can find us online if you would choose to do so. So um, where you can find us online, our website is retrograding.fireside.fm. You can find us on Facebook if you go to facebook.com slash retrograding. Uh, you can find each other on Retrograding Party Line on Facebook. We're still trying to figure out what we're going to be doing with either one of those things, so they may not be updated in a while. We're trying to publish more things, or at least I'm trying to come up with ideas of what to do there. So maybe while this, when this is published, we'll figure that out. Maybe not. We'll find. Anyway. Uh, maybe check back in a month. Maybe we'll have more. But our music is done by Dominique Barnes, who continues to be great. And this brings us to our final segment, which is, guys, I learned something today. And unlike many of our recordings, I've actually prepared a lesson. Something that um, Jimmy Stewart says towards the end of the film. I think it's a lesson that could be useful to certain people and something that everyone should mull over in case it comes up in their life. Uh, so a beneficial advice, if you're going to partake in a certain activity, this will be helpful to you. So our my final thing here, it's um, guys, I learned something today. You shouldn't keep souvenirs of a murder. You know, it's... 
for for the misunderstanding of mental disabilities in this film is from watching a lot of true crime shows apparently that is a thing that a lot of like serial killers will do some of them Absolutely. will save souvenirs from their killings so right it's how they keep track of the many many so people they this could they be kill. one thing that the movie got right if, but, if this was a serial killer right the husband's <laughs> not a serial killer Judy is not a serial killer. She keeps a necklace because she thinks it's pretty. You gotta get rid of that stuff or you're gonna get caught. So, mull that over for the coming month, and we will see you guys next time. (laughs) 